the question comes back to you. Will you have Jesus to be your king? Before we sit down, let me lead us in a prayer. Father God, wherever our faith is right now, we pray that you would help us to understand what you were doing that first Easter and what it has to do with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do take a seat. And um, I wonder how you would describe your relationship with God right now. I guess for many of us, um, it's a bit like our relationship with the Queen. I mean, I've sung the school song to her when she came to visit. She's, she's written to my family, or at least to my granny, uh, when she turned 100. So, you know, Liz and I, we've had a little bit of, uh, uh, no, you know, to be honest, she is just a distant figure with whom I have no personal relationship at all. And there was certainly a time when I would have said exactly the same about God. So I came from a non-Christian home. Dad uh, is an atheist. Mum is agnostic. They only ever took me to church twice for the two unavoidable occasions, once for a funeral, once for a family wedding, of which I'm embarrassed to say I was a page boy, and of which I would love to be able to destroy all photographic evidence. Um, and yet, without anyone encouraging me to believe in him, deep down I knew that God was there, as we all do. I just didn't have a clue how to relate to him. Until a kind and persevering friend um, invited me along to something like this, and I heard what God had done that first Easter to get me into a relationship with him. That's what I want to talk about briefly from those readings we had earlier. So I wonder if you'd turn back in the service sheet to page four, and um, that first reading. So they're both from John's Gospel. They're both lifted from the Bible. Uh, this is eyewitness stuff written by someone who was with Jesus, probably written um, in the 80s or 90s, Jesus crucified AD 30. Uh, let me read from the start of that reading. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, and there they crucified him. And that's how the Roman Empire did capital punishment. So that's what happened on Good Friday. And if you understand why, you will have the answers to three of life's most important questions. And the first is, what has gone wrong between us and God? If he's there, it's evidently a problem, isn't it? What has gone wrong between us and God? I've got an older brother called Neil. He's a senior Vodafone um, executive, so if you're with them, can I say thanks so much for subsidizing my Christmas and birthday presents. He's a very generous guy, but he doesn't yet, anyway, share my faith in Jesus. Coming back from my grandmother's funeral, um, I realized I'd never really asked him straight out where he was coming from, so I said to him, do you actually believe in God? And he said, yeah, I definitely believe he's there. And so I said, well, if it's even possible that he has made himself knowable through Jesus, is that not worth having a look? And he said, to be honest, I don't want to. And I said, why not? And he said, I just feel a real antipathy towards God. 
And I said, why? And he said, I guess I just don't want him interfering in my life. Now, my brother does not usually use long words like antipathy, um, except possibly in Scrabble when he wants to get the P down on a, uh, a, a triple word score. But it was brilliantly well chosen. I can't think of a better one for how the Bible describes the natural attitude of each one of us here to God, because we don't really want him interfering, do we? Telling us what's right, what's wrong, what's got to change. We are anti. And at one level, that is why Jesus died on the cross, because he came into this world as God's son, clearly claiming to be that, saying, I am your rightful king. I've come to reclaim your lives for myself. And certainly the Jewish leaders did not want him to be that in their lives. And so engineering it with the Roman governor, Pilate, they got Jesus crucified in order to get rid of him, or so they thought. Just look on to verse 19 in that reading. Pilate, the governor, also wrote an inscription or sign and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I'm the king of the Jews. In other words, don't give credibility to him. And Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. So when they crucified someone, they would fix a sign to the cross above them to say what the charge was and to spite the people who engineered his death, Pilate wrote exactly what Jesus had claimed, namely that he is our rightful king. And so the irony of that sign is that it actually sums up precisely why Jesus was crucified, that people heard his claim to be their rightful king and they were anti. So when you look at the cross of Jesus, the first thing you see is your own natural attitude to God mirrored there that says, I don't want you to be king in my life. And I wonder if that's where you are right now in relation to God. The funny thing is, I never realized that that's where I was until friends started inviting me along to things like this, at which I adamantly, consistently said no. Uh, we were all at boarding school, so on Sunday morning there was compulsory religion, which I couldn't say no to. Straight after school chapel, there was a Christian union meeting, and I had this particular friend who would pop up on a Thursday or a Friday and invite me to the Christian union. And every week I would say, I'll think about it, which gave me time to cook up another excuse, which was harder than it sounds, because between school chapel and Sunday lunch, absolutely nothing happened in the school. And so, for integrity's sake, I would have to fix up prior engagements like games of squash, you know, or, or get great aunts to come and take me out for coffee or whatever it was. And one week, this wretched friend did the dirty by inviting me to come just as we were walking out of chapel, and I had nowhere to go. And I only said yes because I couldn't think of an excuse quick enough. And I actually came to faith through that very first meeting I went to. But looking back, the way I was saying no to that friend was actually a way of showing that I was saying no to God. I resented the idea of him being king, and so I didn't even want the issue clarified. And maybe that's the sticking point for you. Maybe you resent the idea of anyone, let alone God, telling you how to live your life. Maybe you're from a Christian home, you're still working out what you believe, and maybe 
resent the thought that uh, other people are having more fun or having it easier. Or maybe it's not so much God's moral rule that you resent as his, his rule over the circumstances of your life. Maybe it is something that has happened to you or something that has not happened to you that leaves you thinking, I don't want that God. Deep down, there is a natural resentment of God in all of us. But we have to face the fact that the Bible says if we keep saying no to him to the end of our lives, then with no pleasure at all, he will have to say no to us. I can't have you in my kingdom, in my heaven. That's the judgment that comes to that attitude to God because the attitude is offensive and because you can't be part of a kingdom if you won't accept the king. So that's the first question. What's gone wrong between us and God? The second one is, what has God done to put it right? And this is where Christianity is totally unique. You, you hear so many people say, you know, all religions are basically the same, aren't they? Which is just like people who say instant coffee and real coffee are basically the same. It just means they don't know anything about coffee at all. Because none of the other religions even asks the question, you know, what has God done to put us right with himself? They are all about what do we have to try and do to put us right uh, with him? You know, they ask, what do we have to do? They're DIY religions, do-it-yourself religions. So, for example, I was uh, doing a dinner event um, uh, with a talk like this, and I sat down after I'd spoken um, next to the hapless Muslim woman next to me who drew the short straw of sitting next to my seat. And I said to her, I, I thought, well, I might as well jump in with both feet. I said, so if you were knocked down by a bus and killed on the way home, you know, and had to face Allah, how do you think it would go? You know, it's usual sort of light-hearted banter. Um, <laughs> oh, and, you know, have, an, have another after eight. Um, and um, so she said, the classic Muslim thing, she said, well, we believe that Allah will, will weigh up our good deeds and our bad deeds and he'll judge us accordingly. So I said, and how do you think that's looking right now? And she very honestly said, not good. And I said, do you think that's going to change between now and the end of your life? And she very honestly said, no. And actually, we got into a long conversation. It turned out she was, like so many people living in DIY religion, she was living in quiet despair uh, of ever being able to make herself acceptable to God. She said to me, I am deeply afraid of him. And I think that along with resentment, that is our other most natural feeling towards God, isn't it? Fear. I bet that there are people here this evening who are fearful that they have done something that puts them beyond relationship with God. I bet there are people here who are fearful that they've just left it too late. I had a lovely elderly relative who said to me once, Ian, I wish I had your faith, but I have left it too late. She had the pension plan view of God, which is that you've got to pay in daily, monthly, yearly installments of goodness throughout your whole life to stand any kind of chance that God is going to let you in. And it's not like that. Thank God it's not like that. Because what's unique about Christianity is that it doesn't say, do it yourself. It says, done. It says, God has done everything back at that first Easter that it takes to put you back into relationship with him. Look on in that reading, if you would, to verse 28 now. So this is Jesus' moments before the end. Verse 28. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now you can understand a dying man saying, I am finished, but that's not what he said. He said, it is finished. The original word was the one that they would have used when you'd, um, you wanted to say job done. You know, you've finished an essay or you've knocked off a piece of DIY. It was the word that they used to write across bills or debts which had been fully settled, paid in full. It was the equivalent of that stamp. And as Jesus died, that's the word that he chose to use to explain what he was doing. It's as if he was saying, in dying, I am finishing the job that I came to do, which was to pay for the forgiveness that you need in order to come into relationship with God my Father. And you won't make sense of the cross unless you understand two things. One is that nothing we do can make up for the wrong that we do. DIY religion says it can, but it can't. I mean, just imagine that we got chatting afterwards. You don't you know, know me and we got chatting. And first of all, you spilled an entire cup of coffee over my jacket. And instead of apologizing profusely, you just said, well, it was a bit of a rag. You needed a new one anyway. Um, and then it comes out in conversation. Um, I say to you that I originally come from Basingstoke. And you say, oh, I am sorry. I guess, I guess someone has to. Um, and you offend me and you offend me and you offend me. Now, if the point comes when you want to put things right, you can try and be nice, you can try what you want, but the only thing that puts relationships right is if the offended party is willing to forgive. That's the first thing you've got to understand if you're going to get the cross. The second thing you've got to understand is that God could only forgive in a way that upholds justice. I'm often asked the question, um, you know, we forgive all the time. Why is it that God had to require some kind of payment, some kind of sacrifice? Why can't he just forgive like us? To which the answer is, he's not like us. He's God. Unlike you, he's responsible for upholding justice in this universe. So when he forgives, it has to be in a way where it cannot for a moment be open to the accusation that he's just swept our wrongdoing under the carpet and said, let's put it over there, it doesn't matter. And the way that he found was the cross. Imagine that history has just ended and that we are not sitting here at Easter Music, we are standing at the Day of Judgment. And what the Christian faith promises is this. It promises that if I turn to Jesus as King, not only will he forgive my entire past and accept me as I am, he will keep forgiving me whenever I need it for the rest of my life. He will accept me for the rest of my life and welcome me when I finally arrive at the end of it. So fast forward to the day of judgment. There I am being welcomed by Jesus and someone at the back of the crowd says, you can't do that. What about everything that Ian Garrett's ever done wrong? You, you've got to do justice on that. And because of the cross, God's answer is, I have done justice on that. When my son died in Ian Garrett's place on the cross. So just imagine that this white file stands for the record of 
the unique perfect life of Jesus, the only perfect life ever lived, the only life that never deserved judgment at the end of it. There is Jesus at the end of his life. Now imagine that this black file is the record of wrongdoing of, of you or me, which most certainly does deserve judgment. Now this is the heart of Christianity. The Bible says that on the cross, Jesus was taking the penalty, paying the penalty for the black file of every single one of us so that on the one hand we can be forgiven and on the other hand justice was done and seen to be done. So coming back to the scene on the day of judgment, there is the objector saying you can't let him in. What about his wrongdoing? And, and God turns to an angel and says, go and get Ian Garrett's record. The angel comes back with this white file with my name on the front of it. And God says, did you find anything else on the shelf? And the angel says, there was a black file there, but it only had one page in it. And God says, what did it say? And the angel says, paid in full. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant that his death has done everything to see anyone in this building forgiven for everything forever. So whoever you are, whatever you've done, however long you've been keeping God at arm's length, he could forgive you and accept you right now. In fact, I ought to correct myself and say he would love to forgive you and accept you right now. That's why he gave his son to die for you. That's why his son came for you, out of love. I wonder if you're prepared to believe that. That is the hardest thing of the Christian faith to believe. The third question is simply this, how do we need to respond? My wife Tess and I have just had a wedding anniversary. It was pretty much six years almost to the day when I was standing down there and Jonathan, who is leading the service tonight, asked me, Ian, will you have Tess to be your wife? And I said, I will. And at that point, I had done everything necessary for Tess to become my wife, but it didn't automatically make her that. The question still had to be answered, you know, Tess, will you? And in an unguarded and absent-minded moment, she, uh, no, she said, I will. <laughs> and giving his son to die for us, God has said clearly, I will. I will forgive you and accept you back, whoever you are, whatever you've done. But it's not automatic. The question comes back to you. Will you have Jesus to be your king? Will you ask him for his forgiveness and put your life back in his hands where it belongs? And I, I deliberately say Jesus because although he died, he's not dead. He's alive in heaven and he's calling on you to respond to what he's done for you. And you can see that if you turn on lastly and briefly in your service sheet to that second reading that we had from John chapter 20. Just turn on to that second reading, uh, and at the top of page 7, just, uh, just find verse 16. So Jesus' body was put in a tomb at the end of Good Friday. Saturday was rest day. On Easter Sunday, his followers come to give it the final burial treatment, or so they think. They find the tomb open, no body, only the grave clothes, uh, and it looks as if the body has just dematerialized and passed through them. And then Jesus began appearing to them, bodily resurrected. And in verse 16, he appears to this follower called Mary, 
Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. So presumably she's grabbed him. Do not cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, returned permanently to heaven. There are, there are going to be some more appearances. You don't need to grab onto me like this is the last. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now that's where he is now. He's calling on you to respond to what he's done for you so that you can know his father as your father. It's that extraordinary. So instead of relating to God at a distance with resentment and fear, he's holding out the opportunity to know him as a perfect heavenly father with whom you can trust the rest of your life. And there's just a world of difference between those two. Let me um, end like this. Imagine I could draw a line of where everyone in this building stood in relation with God. And at this end of the line are the people who can say, I know I'm forgiven. I know God as Father. I know he's going to welcome me at the end of the day. And um, I'm now trying to please him by living for him with the rest of my life. There's, there's nothing better in life to, than to be able to say that. At this end of the line would be those who can't say anything of that yet. And for you, God is still that distant, queen-like figure whose existence perhaps you even doubt. And if that's you, can I say, please do keep coming, looking into the Christian message. Inside tonight's service sheet, you'll see this invitation card to all of our upcoming Easter services. You'd be really welcome at uh, any or all of them, because I want to say God is not playing hard to get. He has made himself clearly known in Jesus. He can be found there. He wants to be found there. But maybe tonight you're in the middle. You know this is all true. You've, you've, you've heard enough to respond, but you've never really responded. Maybe you've never really been given the chance. And I want to give you that chance tonight. I want to end with a prayer which would be a way of responding to Jesus for the very first time. And just so that you can think whether it would be appropriate for you, let me just read out this prayer before I lead us. Here's the prayer. Father God, thank you for your love in sending your son to die for me. Please forgive me and accept me as your child. And please help me to live for you from now on. Now, you may be uh, much further back than that, I don't want to encourage you to do anything you don't want to do. You may be further on than that. And you don't need to begin as a Christian again. But if you want to pray that prayer and respond to Christ for the first time, then you could echo it in your head as I pray it now. Let's uh, bow our heads to pray. Father God, Thank you for your love in sending your son to die for me. Please forgive me and accept me as your child. And please help me to live for you from now on. Amen.